Last time when we were in the book of Revelation, which was uh, three Sundays ago, uh, we were looking at the uh, unholy trinity of the dragon and his two beasts by which he seeks to implement his reign upon the earth. Uh, the dragon, we saw, has, uh, is assisted by two beasts, and together they function in a way that try to mimic the triune God, and we uh, can describe them, uh, and some other theologians have described them as the unholy trinity. And this morning, we want to look and see how this unholy trinity uh, is, is designed to work in a way that would deceive people away from the worship of the one true God. So I invite you to open God's Word this morning to Revelation chapter 13. Um, the sermon will be focusing on verses 11 through 18, but for context, I will be reading the entire chapter. Uh, so the th- Revelation 13, I'll be reading from verse 1, even though the sermon will really focus on verses 11 through 18. Here's God's word for us. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to grab one of the Bibles provided in the chairs in front of you. We'd love for you to open God's word. You may find it on page 1035. Here is the word of the Lord for us this morning. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it was allowed to work in the presence of the beast, It deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. 
Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is a number of a man, and his number is 666. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you pray with me, asking God to bless the preaching for our hearts. Father, you reveal yourself your word. You reveal yourself uh, what is happening in the uh, heavenly realms, in the spiritual realm, what is happening in the demonic realm so that we might know, so that we might not be caught by surprise, so we might not be caught by, uh, by unawareness. Father, we pray that you would give our hearts a readiness to hear, openness to understand, and I pray that you would use a preaching of your word this morning to build us up for the glory of your great name. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Uh, 666. Most Christians know what that number means. Well, we get to the passage of Scripture where, when we talk about it. Um, I want to, before we get to that number, and we're going to talk about what it means, um, we want to understand what is going on in this passage that leads us to even expose the, the name or the number of, of the beast. We are part, in, in, in a part of the book of Revelation that is uh, the last interlude that breaks up the 21 judgments of God. Uh, this last interlude uh, is one of the significant parts of the book of Revelation because it reveals how the devil is seeking to fight against God's people. He has lost the battle against God, but he's now fighting against God's people and against God's creation to turn the creation away from worshiping the Creator. In the first half of chapter 13, we saw that the dragon um, has two helpers. Uh, the, the first beast uh, was able to get the whole earth to worship uh, the beast, the first beast and the dragon. In this text, we see the details how the unholy trinity is able to make the, the people of the earth uh, to worship, to become worshipers of the beast. It is through the work of the second beast that comes out of the earth, that the unholy trinity is able to secure the worship of the whole earth um, uh, towards the worship of the whole earth towards a beast. And by looking at the details that we get to see in the second half of chapter 13, my prayer is that we would be aware of the tactics of the evil one uh, in deceiving the earth to worship not the creator but to worship the beast. How, how does the unholy trinity go about getting the whole earth to worship something other than the true God? The passage not only will show us the tactics of the unholy trinity, but it exposes the mark of the beast, its number, and, uh, as we will see, its significance. If you like taking notes, the sermon this morning will have three major parts, and the second point, the second point will have five subpoints. So three major points, uh, and the second point will be the longest and will have five subpoints. The three points are the following. The false, the second beast or the false prophet, 
um, speaks like a dragon. The false prophet speaks like a dragon. By the way, for those of you who are wondering why am I calling the second beast the false prophet, is because later in the book of Revelation, uh, we will see the second beast identified by the name the false prophet. So for the sake of keeping things more clear between the two beasts, I'm just going to call the second beast the false prophet. But know that they're both two beasts that are being used by the dragon to carry out the dragon's ploys. So the false prophet speaks like a dragon. Second, uh, the false prophet leads people to worship. Third, the name of the beast reveals its true power. Let's look at each of these points. The false prophet speaks like a beast. Verse 11, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Now, in the book of Revelation that is filled with symbolism, the picture or the, the, the mention of horns uh, is always a symbol for kingly power, for, for royal power, for authority. And here, uh, we are told that the beast had two horns like a lamb. Now, this is significant that it mentions two horns like a lamb. Throughout the entire book of Revelation, the image of a lamb is an image consistently used to describe Jesus. But here, the second beast, or the false prophet, has two horns like a lamb. In other words, this beast seeks to mimic the power and the authority of Jesus. But notice what shows the true nature of this beast. Verse 11, it had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It's only when it opens its mouth that we get to hear and make becomes very clear that this beast is serving the dragon. It may pretend to have the power of Jesus, uh, but it speaks like a dragon. Now, when Jesus warned his followers uh, and warned us in Matthew 7 that there will be some among us who will come in sheep's clothing but they are wolves. When Jesus spoke that warning, he was speaking about false teachers. It is a teaching that betrays those who are wolves, uh, even though they might look like sheep. And here the third member of the unholy trinity pretends to be like Christ in, in its power, but its teaching betrays that it's a beast serving the dragon. Friends, one of the most important things about a church is what it teaches. We need to discern whether the truth a church teaches is the truth of God's Word, which is revealed in the Bible, or if it teaches only smooth things that may encourage and lift up people, but, but they're smooth things that lead people away uh, from God and prefer human preferences over the Word of God. Friends, the teaching that is communicated uh, shows whether someone is coming um, from God or from the dragon. One of the qualifications for elders is that they must be able to discern the truth from error and they must be able to correct wrong teaching when it appears. If anyone is a visitor this morning and if you're looking for a church, uh, two things you should consider in, uh, in looking for a church, whether the Lord uh, leads you to consider this congregation or another congregation here in Austin, uh, but two things you should consider in looking for a church. Uh, the first two things should be, 
look on their website for their statement of faith. What does that church believe? And if you find a church website that has a very short statement of faith, like two, three sentences, you should stay away from that church. Because it tries to put the doctrine to be very small and minimal. A second thing you should look for on a, on a church's website is look the preaching. Listen to the sermons. Look what kind of teaching that church supports and makes available. And if the teaching is not biblically faithful and rich with the word of God, if the teaching is more centered on man, you should stay away from that church. It may look powerful. It may look like it has a great impact in the city. But if what it speaks is not to bring people to the word of God and to the worship of God, you should stay away from that church. The dragon here is served by two beasts. And one of those beasts, the false prophet, speaks like a lamb. I mean, looks like a lamb, has the appearance of having the authority of Christ, but it speaks like a dragon. Friends, if, a, if what a church teaches, if what a church teaches, whether through its, its statement of faith or its public preaching of the word, uh, if it's not faithful and rich in Scripture, you should stay away from that no matter how friendly that church looks. The third person of the unholy trinity appears to have the power of Christ but speaks like a dragon. Be aware. A second point that we see in this passage, and this is going to be the big point of the sermon or the longest point of the sermon, is that the false prophet, the second beast, leads people to worship. That's right. The second beast leads people to worship. The aim of the second beast is not to scare people away. The aim of the second beast is to draw people to make them worship something other than the true God. And that something in this particular case, as we'll see, is um, the, the first beast. Look at verse 12. It, this, this, this second beast, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. In other words, the unholy trinity is interested to make people worship. Sometimes you hear the phrase, worship wars. Uh, when, it, when you hear that phrase, it's oftentimes used uh, to speak about people who fight about what kind of music style they should have in church. Worship wars. They, they, they even, there's some, some books written on that, worship wars. Um, there's another worship war that is more significant than just what kind of music style we, we sing in church. And that worship war is here in the book of Revelation chapter 13. The unholy trinity is fighting for worship. And the key point for us to consider is that the dragon and his two assistants is trying to get the, the earth to worship the beast, one of the members of the unholy trinity. Friends, we all worship something. God made us to be creatures who worship. We either worship God, the creator of the universe, who is the father of, the, of Jesus Christ, or we worship something else. In our own day, in, particularly in, in America here, the, the, the fastest growing religion is, 
and the most, the most engaged religion is the worship of the self. We are worshiping something, either God or, or something else. Behind the worship of anything else stands the unholy trinity that seeks to mislead people not to worship the creator God. Here in the second part of chapter 13, we see the false prophet um, as, as, as having this primary aim to make the dwellers of the earth worship the beast. Notice the false prophet, the second beast, is not trying to, dwell, is to make the dwellers of the earth worship itself. Did you notice that? It's trying to make the dwellers of the earth worship the first beast. In doing so, the, the second beast tries to mimic the Holy Spirit, whose primary aim is to help people worship Jesus. As we read in our own statement of faith, the Holy Spirit exalts Christ. Here, the second beast, the false prophet, prophet is aimed to exalt the first beast. Well, the second beast is trying to do something similar as the Holy Spirit tries to do to, to Jesus. Uh, it tries to get the people of the earth to worship uh, the, the, the first beast. For the second time in this chapter, we are told that the first beast received a deadly blow. And this is why we, we get back to why would the second beast try to lead the people of the earth to worship the first beast? Because the first beast is really the image of the Antichrist. Uh, in verse 14, we are told that this first beast was wounded by the sword and yet it lived. This mortal wound inflicted on the first beast has puzzled interpreters. Uh, and, and there's a number of theories that people put up. What, what is this wound that the first beast received that was healed? I'm persuaded by the view that this mortal wound inflicted on the beast likely refers to the blow Christ gave the dragon and his beast when Jesus died on the cross. Just as it was promised in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. This happened at the cross when Jesus died, and then three days later, Jesus rose again from the dead. In chapter 12, we saw how the death, resurrection, and the exaltation of Jesus uh, was the means by which the dragon was kicked out of heaven. He received a deadly blow. Yet the serpent, this dragon, and his beast is not going away that easily. He is not giving up his defeat. We will see at the ending chapters of Revelation that the dragon and the beast and the false prophet will finally be thrown into the lake of fire, which is hell. But before that time comes, before the time of the end comes, the beast that received a mortal wound by Christ is pretending to keep on living, and its mortal wound appears to have been healed. And because of that, the unholy trinity is able to make the people of the earth turn away from the worship of God. The job of the false prophet of the second beast is to entice the whole world to worship the first beast that had a mortal wound that had been healed. Now, how does the false prophet, how does this second beast make the whole earth worship the first beast? And here's where we get five strategies, five things that the false prophet uses to get the whole earth to worship the first beast. The first sign, the first strategy is by using great signs. Look at verse 13. 
It performs great signs in even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. The false prophet has at his disposal great power by which it tries to impress the people of the earth. An example of this great power is the ability to bring fire down from heaven. And why is this example given to describe the power of this false prophet? Well, for, for two reasons. For one, the two witnesses in chapter 11 also are described as, as being able to bring out fire from their mouth. This is a way of, of showing that their word will penetrate anything and everything. Um, but there's another reason why the sign of bringing fire, and this time from heaven down to earth, is, is, is given to this beast. It's the sign of Elijah in the Old Testament. The sign of bringing fire down from heaven was a sign that Elijah used when Elijah confronted Israel of their idolatry and desire to worship the Baals. And Elijah said, let the true God be revealed and proved by seeing who can bring down heaven, a fire from heaven. And Elijah used that sign to prove who is a true God and who should people worship. Baal or the true God. And in the Old Testament, Elijah was able to bring fire down from heaven to prove that the God of Israel, the God of Elijah, not the Baals, are the true God, is a true God. But here the false prophet is bringing on and able to do the very miracles that were used in the Old Testament to prove the truthfulness of God, the false prophet is using similar miracles to affect the opposite, to lead people away from worshiping the true God and to worship a false God. In other words, this, this false prophet is able to use even the miracles that God had used in the Old Testament. Any kind of exhibit of power, to show people and to lead people away from the worship of the true God. Jesus gave this warning in Matthew 24, 24. He said, the false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Francis tells us that we should not base our faith on signs, on manifestations of power, on exhibits of miracles. We should not be gullible to believe any manifestation of power. Today, some people live by the slogan, if it's powerful, it must be true. If they see a powerful experience in in some place or have a powerful experience in their own lives, they assume it must be true and right. But here is a powerful beast working great miracles and does it to mislead people away from the truth. What, what we should take from this is that we should grow in discerning the truth, not merely by what our eyes see, but by what our ears hear. Learn to discern the content of what is being taught. And don't be too easily, easily impressed by appearances. A second way that the beast um, manifests or, or uh, misleads the, the people of the earth to, to worship the beast is by deceiving people into idolatry. By deceiving people into idolatry. The sign and the great power that the false prophet shows is used for one singular purpose, to deceive the people into idolatry. Look again at verse 14. 
by the signs that he was allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Making an image for worship was idolatry. Making an image for worship was idolatry. God said the first two commandments in Exodus 20, when he gave the Ten Commandments, he said, don't make any other gods, don't have any other gods besides me, and don't make any image of, a, of anything and worship it. Using images to worship is idolatry. But here is the second beast deceiving the entire earth to make an image of the first beast and to entice the people of the earth to worship the first beast. Now, when the, when the beast does this to the dwellers of the earth, the beast is not speaking the truth. It's deceiving people. We saw how, we saw how the dragon in chapter 12, verse 9, was described as the deceiver of the whole earth. And here the false prophet is using deception, uh, deception into idolatry uh, to secure the worship of the whole earth. Friends, when any of us fall into idolatry, whenever any people worship false gods, it's not simply because of the truth that they fall into idolatry. It's not because of what looks like truth. It's because of deception. The beast is leading people to worship idols by deceiving. Idolatry is always deceptive. Now, earlier in, in Revelation 9:20, John connects the worship of idols with the worship of demons. To worship idols is to worship demons. And this suggests that behind any idolatry is actually the image of the beast. Behind any idolatry is the image of the beast. The way the people of the earth worship the beast today uh, is, I, is through idolatry. Some people say, well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not having an image with a beast in front of me, and, and I don't bow down to an image of a, of a beast. Well, friends, if our lives pursue idols that we are making for ourselves, in essence, we are worshiping the beast. Anything that seeks to take the place of Christ in our lives becomes an idol and plays the same role that the beast is seeking to play, namely, to dethrone Christ from the worship, from the honor, from the adoration that is due to him alone. The false prophet causes worship for the beast by deceiving people into idolatry. So you may not think that you're worshiping the beast, but if you're given into idolatry, it is an extension of the worship of the beast. A third way that the, the false prophet uh, causes people to, to worship uh, the beast is by bringing life into the idols. By bringing life into the idols. Look at verse 15. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak. Now, here the beast has a strange ability. This false prophet, the second beast, has a very strange ability. The ability to make an image, the image of the beast, speak. Why is this a big deal? 
Because one of the truths in the Bible about idols, one of the things that God reveals about idols is that they do not have mouths to speak. They do not have eyes to see. They do not have breath in their mouths. The passage we read earlier in the service from Psalm 135, verses 15 through 17 says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. But here the false prophet makes the idol, the image of the beast, have life. The false prophet gives this image of the beast the ability to speak to its worshipers. The dwellers of the earth who are, who are engaging in, in the worship of idolatry, um, for them it might seem that idols don't speak, but, but actually the, image, the, the false prophet makes idols be relatable, feel alive. When people make money into their idol, it is because they feel that money brings them security, peace, happiness. Friends, the reason why we turn anything into an idol is because we can relate to that object or person, those things, and, and we have great expectations from them. They make promises to us, and we believe their promise. Now, what makes idols have such life, have such power, have, have such ability to engage with us? It's the false prophet. The false prophet has this strange and devilish ability to make idols appear like living things that we can relate to, that we can have a relationship with, that we can engage with. Friends, this is why idolatry seems such an engaging experience. And it is the third member of the unholy trinity that makes idolatry to be such an engaging and lively experience. Fourth way that the false prophet causes the worship of the beast it's by threatening with death for not worshiping the beast. Look at verse 15, the second part. And it also caused those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Here the image itself, because now it has ability to speak, uh, threatens those who are thinking about resisting it. Those who are on the fence. Should I worship the beast or should I not? And the, 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 this image is speaking this threat of death. To resist worshiping the image of the beast brings a threat of death. Now, that's serious intimidation. But it's not the first time an image is accompanied by the threat of death for not worshiping it. Do you remember the story of Daniel's three friends in Daniel chapter 3? King Nebuchadnezzar put up an image for his entire empire. And he ordered all the people of the kingdom to bow down before this image and worship the image. And whoever refused to worship the image would be thrown into the fiery furnace. And Daniel's three friends refused to worship the image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. They would rather die than bow down to the image. Now the same strategy is used again by the, by the beast. If anyone is not impressed with the image of the beast... Then they are threatened with death. Friends, some people might be led to worship the image of the beast, not out of amazement with the beast, but out of fear for one's life. If we love our lives more than God, 
we are susceptible to worship the image of the beast, not out, out of delight or amazement, but out of fear for our own lives. Friends, the love of our, the love of our own lives sets us up to become worshipers of the beast out of love for our own selves. That's why Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, he must first deny himself, pick up his cross daily, and then follow me. The beast says, if you don't follow me, I'll kill you. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you must die to yourself. Revelation 12, 11, those who conquer the dragon are described as those who loved not their lives, even unto death. The false beast can get people to worship the image of the beast by appealing to their love for their lives and protecting themselves at the cost of worshiping the beast. But there's another intimidation. There's, a fifth int- there's another mechanism that the beast uses to, to, do, to lure the people of the earth to worship the beast. And this is perhaps the one that we, particularly here in the West, are most susceptible to. The false prophet, the fifth way, the false prophet causes worship for the beast by offering material incentives. By offering material incentives. In verses 16 and 17, we are told that the false prophet has the ability to put a seal on the people of the earth, on those who are not part of God's elect, that is, um, and, and, and put the seal with the name of the beast. Look at verse 16 and 17. It also causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. In putting a mark on everyone, regardless of social status, regardless of age, regardless of material possessions, in putting a mark on everyone, the beast is again imitating God. He's not doing anything new here. Earlier in the first interlude of Revelation 7, we saw how God sealed his people and put a mark on their foreheads. Before God would bring the destruction of the earth, uh, upon the earth, God commanded his angels to put a seal on his people. Here, the beast is trying to do something similar for all those who don't belong to the beast, to, the, to God. The mark that, that God put on his people was a mark that showed that the people belong to God and are secure in God. It's a mark of belonging and a mark of security. But here, the false prophet, this, the second beast of the unholy trinity, is putting a mark on those who, on everybody else, really, on everybody else. And notice what is the effect of not having the sign of the beast. It will make it difficult to get the things of this world. It will make it difficult to live as part of this world. The beast is presented as controlling the commerce of the world. So that, it says, it causes all to be marked. So that, verse 17, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has a mark. In other words... The, the beast is controlling the trade of the world 
so that to get the goods of this world will require to compromise with the beast, identifying with the beast and belonging to the beast. In other words, serving the beast will come with material incentives and rewards. Now, we will see more of this in Revelation 17 and 18. Here, though, the beast withdraws the benefits of material goods from anyone who does not belong to the beast, from anyone who does not want to identify with the beast. In other words, a means by which a false prophet intimidates those who are on the fence about worshiping the beast is by luring them with the advantages of material incentives, of comfort and wealth. To refuse to worship the beast brings the opposite effect. Refusing to belong to the beast brings significant uh, side effects of being able to engage with society. It affects one's ability to provide for one's even physical needs. I remember stories in communist Romania. My parents and, and my parents' generation telling me, I was only a kid then, but how believers used to be discriminated against and not allowed to pursue higher education simply because they were Christians. Now, what if loyalty to Christ might affect your job so that you are not considered for a promotion at work? Or may even cause you to lose your job? Or may even lead you to consider taking another position so that you don't have to compromise your convictions? Have you considered that our loyalty to Christ can bring us disadvantages in how we deal with the world? Friends, this is not new to America. Just this past week, a Christian soccer player, Jalene Hinkle, has withdrawn herself from the national U.S. soccer team after it was announced that the squad would be wearing rainbow-colored gay pride jerseys in their upcoming game. And, Chris, and, and this Jolene Hinkle, this soccer player, chose that she's no longer able to play on the national U.S. soccer team because she does not want to identify with that kind of conviction. Is it possible that for us as Christians, following Christ and the teaching of His Word may call us to experience physical and material disadvantages? And think about how the material incentives of comfort and wealth can tug at our hearts and seek to turn us away from worshiping Christ. The beast's strategy is to make it difficult for, for the people of God to engage in society without compromising with the beast. These are the five ways in which false prophet, or the second beast, causes the people of the earth to worship the first beast. It is by using great signs by deceiving people into idolatry, by bringing life into our idols, by threatening with death, and by offering material incentives. Through these verses, the false prophet is trying to present the beast as being all-powerful, owning the trade of the world, as being invincible. But this chapter closes with a powerful information that helps believers to rest assured that no matter how powerful this beast appears, no matter how, how full of authority this beast appears to have and be, its name gives away its true 
nature and power and authority. And point number three in this sermon, the name of the beast reveals its limitation. Look at verse 18. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and, this, and his number is 666. Now, this verse has caused lots of debate, um, and, uh, and, and interpreters have wondered what it means and how we should interpret it. Some interpreters think that the number 666 should be taken as symbols of letters and thus try to figure out the name of the beast. Uh, some argue that it was referring to King Nero in the first century. Others have suggested other names of rulers throughout the history of the world. Others suggest that it refers still to a future person that is coming. But rather than transforming the numbers into letters, it is better to interpret this number symbolically in light of two, context, two clues from the context. A first clue is to notice that the number 666 is a name that is placed on people's foreheads and on, on their hands. It's not unique in the Bible, as we mentioned already. The same pattern was used not only in Revelation 7, it was actually used in, Revelation, in, in Deuteronomy uh, 11, 18. It was even used in Exodus 13. But in Deuteronomy 11, 18, God said, You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. By putting God's commands, in other words, by putting God's commands on their foreheads and on their hands, it was a means of showing that one's love for God affected their thinking and their doing. In other words, it was a way of saying, by putting a sign on the forehead and on their hand, God's people showed love for God manifested both internally in the mind and the heart, but also externally in their way of life. So the signs on the forehead on a hand was a symbol of showing someone's loyalty and devotion to God through their way of life. That's the Old Testament use of the, of the Im image of putting something on your forehead and on the hand. That's why God in Revelation 7 uses the same sign to protect his people. But here in Revelation 13, the false prophet puts the seal on the people of the earth, on their foreheads and on their hands, as a sign of their belonging and devotion to the kingship of the beast. The sign of the beast is not a microchip. The sign of the beast is, is a way of life that shows people that they do not belong to God, but to the beast. The sign, of the, the sign on a forehead, on a hand, is anything that we do that shows where our loyalty is and where our, our identity is. So don't look for a mere physical mark on your forehead or on your hand. The mark of the beast is, is made of one's way of thinking and one's way of life, which shows to whom they truly belong. But then we have the name 666. What does this name refer to? This number, six, three times, should be contrasted with the number associated with God in this book. After all, we have seen that the unholy trinity is trying to mimic God. In this book, each of the three persons of the triune God have been associated with the number seven. God's wrath 
in this book is made up of three cycles of sevens. The lamb has not two horns, but seven horns. The Spirit of God is described in this book as the seven Spirit of God. Throughout this book, God is associated with a number seven. Well, in contrast with the number seven associated with each of the persons of the Trinity, the number of the unholy Trinity is 666. It's a name that shows, it's a number that shows that the unholy Trinity falls short of God's greatness and authority and power. By the end of the chapter, we have been introduced to each of the three members of the unholy Trinity, and each of them have sought to imitate God, even to pretend to be greater than God. But here at the end of this chapter, at the end of this presentation, we are told that the name of this beast, it shows, proves that they fall short of God's greatness. They fall short of God's power. They fall short of what they pretend themselves to be. So the name 666 is a symbolic name by which John tells us that the mimicking of the dragon and of his unholy trinity will prove to be empty and powerless in the end. We may not see the shortcoming now, but the judgment of God will prove that the, the unholy trinity falls short of God's power and authority. So here's the irony. Here's the irony. The sign of the beast, which really means the unholy trinity, falls short of God's power and greatness, is a sign that the people belonging to the beast wear or have on themselves, unaware that it all represents the shortness, the limited power, of the one they're trying to abide by, to go with, to, to follow. The power and authority of the beast and of the whole unholy trinity is limited. Friends, by telling us that the name of the beast is 666, God's people are assured that the beast's fall is certain, that its limitedness is certain. No, ma no matter how powerful it may appear, no matter how much authority it may seem to have, the power and authority of the beast are limited and they will fall short. So don't worship it. No matter how it, it tries to lure you in, to give in, to compromise, don't worship that which ultimately falls short of the glory of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you Show us the true nature of how this world is sought to be won over in its worship, away from you and towards the beast. Father, thank you that you reveal in your word the way in which this unholy trinity is seeking to draw our hearts, to draw our affections, to draw our lives away from worshiping you. Father, awaken us. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see that in Christ and in him alone is ultimate power, that he has been given the authority and the power that you, have, that you own because he has been the one through whom we are being redeemed. Father, we pray that you would you tr enable us to look to your power, to your throne, to, to your kingship, and not be gullible by anything that this world can use to lure us. Help us to see, O oh Lord, that there is no other throne than yours. 
Help us to trust you and your kingdom. Help us to be followers of you and your kingdom. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.